Well, it's good to be with you all again this morning. Last week, we uh, read from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, and uh, today we're just going to keep chugging along in the, in the book of James. So please turn, tap, swipe your Bibles to James chapter 1, verses 9 to 15, and we're just going to be continuing on in the scriptures about these themes of endurance and, and how do we have true hope and true wisdom. And today we're, we're going to talk about how we can endure wisely. How can we endure wisely? So James chapter 1, continuing on to verses 9 to 15. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me before we begin. Father, we ask for your wisdom to endure. Lord, we pray for the preaching of your word, that you would remind us of the riches that we have in Christ, and that, Lord, Christ has endured the great trial. May your word pierce our hearts, our minds, our souls, our strengths, our spirits. To you, uh, we give all the glory to love you and to love our neighbor more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So let's, let's start off with a little bit of trivia here this morning. How many of you have ever heard of the name Bjorn Halvard Napskog? No. He isn't a household name. I, there's no way you could have known him. Uh, this Norwegian has a, has a title that only 13 other individuals in the world has. He is a board game champion, specifically the Monopoly world champion. All right. In 2009, he, at 19 years old, became the, the youngest player in the world of competitive Monopoly. And he won the final match at the world stage in Las Vegas in under 40 minutes. Now, you may be asking yourself, how in the world could someone be so good at a board game that is largely based on luck? Right? Getting second at the beauty pageant and, you know, scamming your friends into bad business decisions. How, how did he do it? Bjorn's strategy is one that might seem unorthodox, but actually is a trademark strategy at many who compete at the highest levels of Monopoly. Where us commoners try to amass the biggest and best properties early on in the game, Bjorn focuses on smaller colored properties that other players don't value. Whereas people try and wait to, to amass money to build hotels, Bjorn and others focus on just building small amounts of houses. Whereas we try and pick properties to buy at random, Bjorn studies and has memorized by heart what's called the heat map of the board, probability landings on properties and rates that something is likely to be landed on. Whereas people try and avoid jail at all costs, 
Bjorn knows that a timely jail visit can stretch out to some beneficial rewards in the late game. In other words, Bjorn has amassed wisdom in Monopoly, and the wisdom is this. Endurance is much better for you to stay alive and to hope for the payoff in the end rather than the optics of how rich you look in the game. Today's passage deals with how to endure in the same way, to endure wisely in a seemingly random game that we call life. How do we live in such a way that will allow us to endure? For this, James has some guidelines that seem to go against our expectations, go against of how we think we should play the game. And instead is showing us some examples of what it looks like to display the true hope and true wisdom that we talked about last week to endure wisely this week. So two points here today. One, we endure because Jesus is our great treasure. And two, we endure because Jesus has endured the great trial. So one, we endure because Jesus is our great treasure. Two, we endure because Jesus has endured the great trial. So why does James start talking about the lowly in verse 5 of your text here today, if you look at verse 5? You see, his audience of Christians were, were forced to leave their hometown of Jerusalem. They, were up, they had to uproot their lives to be scattered across the lands. And, and while some of them certainly might have been able to afford the move, most of them would have been in this situation because they would have been described as lowly in verse 9. Sorry, not verse 5, but verse 9. Lowly, a term that could be described as poor. That word lowly in your Bible has about six different meanings in the Hebrew language and in, in which the Greek it was taken from, and all of them mean nothing positive when we talk about lowly. It's, it's words like poor, crushed, oppressed, So it's obvious that this isn't just sort of an economic lowliness that James is talking about with his readers. This is dealing with the real challenges of being a religious minority in their new context, about dealing with religious persecution, about entering into this new nation and and the struggles of of moving and figuring out life in this new area. And, and, And just like communities of today that are faced with the real challenges of of oppression, to belong to the early church meant sacrificing your own needs for the needs of others. This is how you survive. The early church would have been known for their sacrificial nature of the members of the body for one another because they received no support from the outside world. You see, in those days, if you didn't share in the worldview of the times around you, uh, you were putting yourself at danger, financially, socially, economically, all those different kinds of things, um, to not participate in the pagan practices of the day. So a new Christian in this environment might be tempted to look at their faith and look at their, their place now as an exile and the dispersion and ask themselves, you know, is this all worth it? How can I continue to live lowly? Wouldn't it be so much easier for me to just be like the rest of the world around me, to receive the benefits of being accepted by the wider culture and and to sort of reap in those benefits? And what James here is calling us in these verses is to speak to a universal truth to anyone who wishes to call themselves a member of the family of God. The Christian will have to consider themselves as lowly because there is no other pathway. 
Every generation of Christians will have to endure this and will continue to endure this even today in our time. From the early church where they are once viewed as cannibals by society because of misunderstandings surrounding the Lord's Supper, early people were thinking these Christians are eating the body and blood of Christ. These are cannibals. And the early church had to deal with the, the, the ramifications of that misinterpretation. To the Reformation where Protestants stood under the threat of death for just simply translating the Word of God and and making it widely available to the public, to the church today, which often is viewed by the philosophies and worldviews of of our culture as archaic, a relic of the past, we will all be called lowly, just like the generations before us. Now, you might be feeling this on a personal level today. You might be thinking of that family member that mocks your faith, or that friend group or community that you lost because you had to uphold what you believed in. Lowly seems to us a horrible place to be because what we experience in our own eyes could hardly become, we would hardly view that as a treasure. And this is so hard because our culture loves valuing boasting of the rich things of the world rather than the lowly things. I mean, this is the power of advertising and marketing in general. Um, Anyone want to guess how much money was spent in the United States on marketing in 2019 before the coronavirus hit? Anyone want to guess? How about $197 billion on marketing alone? Now, what about 2020? Uh, The market projection is that marketing amount of money that was spent on marketing was $390 billion on marketing alone. Now, why would people spend so much? Why would these, these major companies spend so much on advertising? Why do, why do we watch these commercials that, that are marketed up to the second to hold and grab your attention? Because, you see, companies know the power of associating stuff, things, with the feeling of being rich. You know, no one ever buys luxury items to completely hidden. Have you, you, you have never met a Tesla owner who doesn't like to talk about their Tesla, right? Nonstop. Why? Because it's, it's a symbol of position, of wealth and value that, that causes us to want to let the world know where we stand in the position of others, of the lowly. And so because we are consistently surrounded by this, the Christian who is called to live humbly, who is called to live in this way, we we feel this constant pressure to believe that living lowly is not worth the cost. That we have nothing to boast in our state. And this is what makes James so striking. James here is saying in these verses, you who are lowly, you don't even know how rich you really are. You don't even know what you really have. Do you know what you have? You have an inheritance that is undefiled. You are redeemed and you have been given the crown of life. You are given a forgiveness that no one can take away. You have a treasure that far outweighs anything that you could possibly buy with money. You have Christ. And because you have Christ, you can boast about the greatest treasure 
that the world has ever known. So James is saying that you who are lonely right now, you who feel lonely, you who are in this place of loneliness, you can boast. You can boast not in yourselves, but you can boast in the Lord our God. Our boasting is in the hope that death is not the final answer, that we have a lifetime and an eternity to experience this new life that we've been given in Christ. And so we endure. But what about those who feel rich? Verse 10. It says that they are like a flower of grass that fades away. You see, the audience of James's letter has this image of the grass of Palestine. A grass that was known to wither away from the scorching heat and the rising sun, which would actually dramatically change this sort of entire field, acres of flowers, into a wasteland in just a matter of hours. Think about that, right? Beautiful harvests of fields, right? As far as the eye can see, and then you turn your head, and it's scorched earth even before the evening comes. This is exactly why James is is calling for the rich to realize their position of humiliation. You see, you don't know how easy it is for wealth to change us and how much it can warp our understanding of God and the responsibility that wealth holds. So be humble about it. You see, James is echoing the message of his half-brother Jesus when, when talking on wealth. Do you you remember what Jesus had to say about wealth? I think it's important for us to to remember these things, to to guard our hearts on these things. Look look at this. Matthew 6, 24. This is what Jesus says. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. Luke 16, 11. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? Luke 6, 24, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Luke 9, 25, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Matthew 6, 19 to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he concludes with this, and this is Jesus' words that, that I want us to convict us here today. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, as I read Jesus' words back to you, what is, what is going on in your mind and your heart as I read that? There is absolutely nothing wrong with being wealthy. Or being rich. But scripture is incredibly clear on this. One of life's greatest threats is not the scarcity of resources, but the abundance of them. So, because of that, maybe some uncomfortable questions that we may need to ask yourself here today um, How has wealth changed your relationship with God? How have your possessions poisoned your time? that you could have dedicated to him? Have your treasures pointed towards a, a greater generosity resembling the great generosity of Jesus? Or have your treasures so overtaken your heart that you hold it so tightly that you actually delude yourself into thinking that these things are yours? Consider this, we will be viewed lowly by the world. And the temptation is to believe that lowliness is unworthiness. 
But the gospel turnaround is that our humiliation is that we can actually boast of the great treasure in Christ because we know that Christ will never diminish in value. So I want you to consider this, right? Um, If you're able to boast about Jesus, what you will find is that this treasure will only grow in you as Christ molds you more into himself. The loneliness of our Savior, right? Who comes in a manger to be exalted, as we just sang about, to the highest place. You have have a boasting that can never grow old because his work on the cross is never ending. And he is this overflowing fountain of forgiveness and peace to you. He is the radiance of God's glory, the, the perfection of love, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You want something to boast about? What else can compare with this God? And so with this, James is capturing the idea of endurance because Christ is our greatest treasure. But we can also endure in another sense. We, we can endure by looking at Christ who has endured the great trial. And that's what these next set of verses here are talking about. You see, James is, is using language very similar to the Sermon on the Mount here to talk about the fact that those who remain steadfast will receive the crown of life. Now, the crown here that James is referring to is not a, not a type of crown that we imagine when we think about crowns, right? Think about these like jewel-studded, like pointy gold headgear, right, that accompanies a king. Uh, but that, that's not James, what James is thinking about here. The crown that's referenced here is a, is a crown that would have been made out of a wreath, uh, given to the winner of athletic competitions, right? Think, think about the Olympics every four years or whenever the next Olympics is going to be, right? Um, where, you know, at that, that podium moment where... They put wreaths on the athletes' heads, right? Uh, you know, this sort of reward for dedicating four years of their life to this one moment where they could be the world's greatest broom hockey player. Curling, curling, yeah. Um, player, and, and, you know, they, they, they've dedicated their lives to this. And so, like, this is the reward, the crown that they receive for that. So James is using the imagery here to, to make a contrast to his themes of of. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast in these trials of living lowly because he will receive a much greater crown than a crown made from a wreath. He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So let's let's pause here and let's reflect on this for a second. And and again, ask ourselves the question, what crown are you living for? What crown are you living for? And what, what is your crown made of? Let me pitch you here. Uh, God is saying that there's a crown that is never-ending for those who love God. There, there's this promise, an, an unshakable promise from God that's given to, to us who can look past the delusions of the lies of the world and the devil to live for other crowns. There's a promise for us for, who, who hope for greater joys than any crown on this earth. And how do we know this? Because our Savior has endured the great trials, and we know that he is alive, and he is ruling as the great king. Our great king endured every trial and temptation on our behalf and did it without sin. Think about the crowns that Jesus was tempted with. Power, money, influence, provision, popularity. Jesus was tempted with every available crown of his day. He was tested 
to not show compassion to those who needed it most, to the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed, the orphan, and the widow. He was tested relationally in people who wanted to use him for their own personal gain. He was tested by people who claimed to love him and then betrayed him with a kiss. Every visible sign in Jesus' life pointed to a man of great lowliness. And it would appear at the end of his life, all that he would receive is not a wreath crown, but a crown of thorns. But living this steadfast life, dying on the cross for our sins, led to not just a crown of life for him, but a crown of life for everyone that would call upon his name. In other words, our exaltation will come because the humiliation of Christ and his lowliness remain steadfast. Do you see here? The good news of the gospel is precisely why James wants us to understand the challenges of Jesus' trials. The challenge is not that we, we don't know or we don't hear the good news. The challenge is that we are tempted in the same way that Jesus was and we fail continually. Verse 13 of our text today reminds us that God is not the tempter nor the originator of temptation. You see, to do so would make God a liar. It would impinge upon the very nature and character of God himself, the God who is calling us to be steadfast, the God who isn't leading us astray. And James is reminding us that God endured this great temptation so that we could overcome every temptation. This is the exact problem with Job's wife, by the way, in the book of Job, isn't it? For those of you who are unfamiliar with the story, Job is tested by God, right? He's had everything taken away from him, and, and this is this clear trial, and he's tested by, by the devil, I should say, he's, and, and it's this clear trial to show and to demonstrate that when everything is taken away from him, would Job stand firm in his faith? But Job's wife comes with sort of the worst advice that could come to anyone who is suffering. She says to him, you know, curse God and die. Blame God for this. Blame God for everything that's going on in your life. Will that really show God who's boss? Will that really relieve you of your conscience? Too often we misuse that beautiful doctrine of God's sovereignty and try and blame God when God is actually calling us to endure. He who knew no sin means that the origin of all sin comes from the fallenness of those who rebel against God. And while the world and the devil are to blame for many of the temptations that we face, James here is narrowing his focus in verse 14 and 50, and he wants to hone in on the temptations that lie within us. Now, when we talk about the word desire here in verse 14 and 15, James isn't saying that all desire is bad. There are good desires that God has placed by His Spirit on our hearts. The desire to worship Him, the desire to follow Him, the desire to rest after this service today and have a nap to the glory of God. These are all good desires. Um, but the desires in verse 14 and 15 are desires that pull us from our relationship with God. The word uh, here has, has akin to the, the word of, of this word lure, L-U-R-E, right? Like a fishing lure. Right. Now, I have to admit something to you all right here and right now. Um, I, I'm probably the worst fisherman known to mankind. Uh, so, so God, of course, in his good and perfect irony, moves me to a coastal town right, with plenty of boats and fish. Right? Um, I, I, have to, I have to admit to you, the first three times I went fishing, I caught nothing but three piles of dirt right, in my first three times fishing. 
And I tried everything, by the way, that my friend suggested, right? Uh, make the line dance, pull the lure in slowly, put random things, hot dogs on the worm, and nothing, nothing, nothing has worked at all. And I know what you fishing enthusiasts in the room are going to say to me right now, so let me just stop you right in your tracks. You're, you're going to say, you know, John, all you need to do is just catch one fish, one fish, and, and you'll understand that feeling. I never understood that feeling was about until the fourth time I went fishing in the Chesapeake. A friend of mine who had pity on me, um, he looked at me, watched me being unsuccessful for about 45 minutes, um, said, John, give me a rod. I'm going to put the worm on it. I'm going to put the lure, and I want you to come with me. And so he takes me, not, not to the end of the dock, but he takes me in the midpoint, and he simply said to you, I just simply want you to place your line right over the dock in the midpoint, just right here. Don't throw it. Don't cast it. Don't try and do anything fancy. Just put it right here. Now, at this point, I'm immensely skeptical, right? You got me, the worst fisherman, not even casting a line out to the sea, and somehow this is going to lure a fish. But I decided to go and trust my friend, and because, after all, what do I have to lose? So I sat there for about 20 minutes, and you can guess what this is going. I caught absolutely no fish again, and I just felt completely useless and deflated, and so I decided I'm just going to take a nap. I'm going to sit here with, with a rod in between you know, my, my knees, and I'm going to take a nap with a line just simply dangling there. About 15 more minutes later, my friend checks in on me, and he wakes me up, and he says, did you catch anything? And I said, I have no idea. I was napping. And then he told me to pull the line up. And then I start reeling it in, and out of the water, and out of the hook, there it was sitting there, about the tiniest fish that God had ever created in the world, right? Desperately trying to release itself from the line. I mean, have you ever felt completely ashamed and proud at the same moment, right? I couldn't believe it. And so I was scratching my head, and I was like, I finally caught a fish. But, but I asked my friend, why would a fish react to nothing but just this lure sitting there No movement in the most obvious spot in the world where fishermen would go to kill fish. And his response, and I'll never forget it, was this. Um, You see, um, it, it doesn't matter as much as you think. Fish take the lure wherever you place it because the fish can't help themselves. Many of us don't realize that we've been sitting like a fish underneath the dock. We We act as though we're like fish, that we can't help ourselves. These desires are just things within us that, you know, we know are warped and displaced by sin, but, but this is just who I am. All right, this is, this is kind of the defense that we give. These desires, they fester and they grow, and when it matures, it, it gives birth to sin and death, and it gives us birth to a, a false sense of identity, that our sin defines us. But this isn't the hope of what we have and face as Christians today. Right? And, and what I'm trying to do is, is, is trying to prevent this sort of thinking that has invaded the church, which is, you know, well, we're, we have temptations, we have evil desires, but, you know, as long as we don't act on those evil desires within ourselves, we're okay. We don't need to put those evil desires to death within us. We don't need to combat them. We don't need, we can just let them sit there because as long as we don't act on them, then we're doing all right. And that isn't 
what James or the Scripture tells us about desires, about these lures. We have to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ. And we have to remind ourselves what Christ did. Christ in his perfect humanity was tempted every way that we are yet without sin. Christ was, was, did, took all of these temptations from outside of us, from the world and the devil, and resisted anything that came within in our flesh. You know, have you ever heard that quote, to err is human? The one thing about Jesus' perfect humanity is abundantly clear, that what it means to be truly human is actually not to err. And that Christ has given him, uh, his power and his spirit to us to resist every temptation that comes from within us. So in other words, in, in, instead of identifying with our sin, we have a perfect Savior that can free us from our desires. It means that we can wake up each day to fight against that struggle and that temptation from within it means that we can stop going to patterns that lead to death and start going to patterns that reflect this crown of life that we have that's been given to each and every single one of us. How can I say that? Because I understand the real battle that all of us face each morning. The desires from within that, that we just sort of wake up and we go, I just want to give up. I, I just want to give up on this. I'm, I'm tired. I'm, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm anxious. I, I just, just can't do this anymore. And I know that's what so many of us are feeling now and today. And I'm not here to give you this sense of a false hope, but a real one that Christ has given to us. I'm here to remind us of this King of glory who comes down, who lives a lowly life, way lowlier than any of us have ever experienced. This carpenter from Nazareth who was homeless and had no wealth of his own. This one who resisted the temptation of the world and the devil. And to think of his life as one that could be sacrificed for the sake of you and I. This man who did not live on bread alone. This one who, in purchasing the crown of life for us, took on this crown of thorns upon his head, took the lashes on his back. He took the judgment that we deserved. He took hell upon himself willingly. And if Jesus can do this, and if Jesus says, you are united to me, and if Jesus says that you are the body of Christ, then doesn't that give us hope for just this momentary step ahead of us? for the next day, for the next trial, to not look at our own ability and strength and our wealth and our loneliness, but to look to the loneliness and the wealth and the exaltation of Jesus to carry us in each passing moment. Friends, this is how we can endure. Because Jesus is our great treasure and because Jesus has endured the great trial. This is the way. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the love of the Father, Lord, who reminds us that endurance is not in the visible wealth that we see in front of us, but Lord, in living in loneliness and looking to Christ, who is our exaltation. Father, 
help us to fight against those very desires within us. The very desires that we, we think that we identify with. The very desires that would pull us away from the true hope of knowing that Christ has endured. And so by his grace and power, we can too. God, we thank you for this reminder in your word today. In Jesus' name.